Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to Angry Planet. I'm Matthew Galt. And I'm Jason Fields. World War II is still killing people. Unexploded Ordnance, or UX, the remnants of globe-spanning conflict litters the fields of Europe and the waters of the Pacific. The world spends a lot of money and time cleaning up UX in Europe and helping its victims in the Pacific. Well, there it's a different story, especially in the Solomon Islands. Thomas Heaton is a reporter for Civil Beat and the author of its Lethal Legacy series, which focuses on the devastation World War II is still reeking in the Pacific. Sir, thank you so much for coming on Dinger Planet and talking to us about this. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So you're, you're, you've got a kind of a four-part series and then some follow-ups. That's what Lethal Legacy is. Uh, it's Civil Beat, and I encourage everyone to go to Civil Beat and read this online. It's really excellent reporting. Um, and it focuses on the Solomon Islands. So can you kind of tell us where that is and, and describe the place for us? Sure. Um, so the Solomon Islands is in the South Pacific. Uh, if we are to consider what region it's in, it's in Melanesia. Um, so just north of um, north of Australia and uh, east of Papua New Guinea, uh, it's a kind of like a splatter of almost a thousand islands. Um, the the population running up close to about eight hundred thousand lives on about a third of those islands. Um, it's a idyllic country, you know. It's uh, made up of atolls and beautiful tropical islands um and yes it runs you know a fair distance from east to west and it borders directly with um Papua New Guinea and it was formerly part of the British um part of a British protectorate alongside Fiji and um a couple of other uh, nations and yes so now it's been independent since 1976 um from from the United Kingdom, and yes, yeah, so so it's a um, it's certainly a developing nation in the global south, um, and it's uh, it really is a, yeah a very beautiful country, but highly undeveloped, um, and it is a nation that's still you know as as you've noted is still kind of reeling um, with the realities of in the wake of war, you know, um, with all of the the many problems that that kind of brings. You called it lush but killer. Yes, yes. So you know, if you imagine the the dense jungle that you see in um, many many war movies, you know, where you've got soldiers kind of trudging through um, all of this kind of dense landscape, that's what it's like. Um, it is it, it is extremely lush. It's kind of evergreen and beautiful, but. Uh, what's underneath, what nature has consumed, and what um, many people don't see is the realities that there are these unexploded ordnance kind of buried in the earth or reconsumed by the earth, um, or even just in the near shore waters. Can you tell us what its role was during World War II? 
Sure. So um, during World War II, um, of course, I think perhaps the most more famous than the name Solomon Islands is the name Guadalcanal. So Guadalcanal was, uh, you know, a key area for the Japanese. They they took it over um, in early 1942. And uh, so just after Pearl Harbor kind of occurred, uh, the Japanese started advancing south. They uh, took Guadalcanal pretty easily from the British. Um, essentially what happened was the British saw the Japanese coming um, and they hedged their bets. Well, hedged their bets. They just ditched um, ditched the country, really. They evacuated um, their uh, own people out of the country and down to Australia and encouraged their kind of... Um, their subjects, their Solomon Islander subjects, to head back into the villages or head high into the mountains and kind of uh, get out of the way of the Japanese. Uh, and what came along with that was kind of a call to action um, of the US, and it was essentially the first um, amphibious landing of the US Marines. Um, and the key area that they were really, really concerned about on Guadalcanal was a place called Henderson Field, uh, this, this airstrip that was being created that essentially many feared would give Japan access to Australia, to New Zealand, and then also uh, compromise these kind of key communication lines between Australia and New Zealand and the US. Um, so that's kind of what drove the... the um, U.S. coming in to really help the U.K. Um, and its colonial, you know, um, subjects in, in Australia and New Zealand. Um, and, yeah, so that, that's kind of where it all happened. And then what happened afterwards was very intense fighting, uh, the eventual um, retaking or just taking of this um, Henderson Field. Uh, which is actually now the international airport. Um, it's still the same place. <laughs> so um, if you just imagine the stockpiling of munitions from there, which, you know, led, which essentially fed the rest of the US war effort in the Pacific, if you just imagine the enormity of how many bombs, how many munitions were just stockpiled there, um, it's it's a pretty good kind of indicator of what still exists today because, of course, a lot of that was either dumped in the ocean um, or was left in place or actually what happened um, in, I think it was 1943, was one of the key areas where these munitions were, were held. Um, there was a bushfire that ran through it and essentially it was a ton of fireworks <laughs> And everything exploded, sending everything out outwards. So there's actually a 300-acre swathe of land right next to Henderson Airport um, on Guadalcanal, which is also home to the uh, capital, um, Honiara. And uh, so that 300-acre kind of swathe of land is completely cut off to uh, Solomon Islanders. They're not allowed to go in there because that's actually so highly contaminated that they don't even know when they're going to get it cleaned up. Uh, it's also home to the uh, EOD squad, the Explosive Ordnance Disposal Team. Um, so, yes, so that, that's kind of a little bit of what uh, <laughs> what's being faced on Guadalcanal um, and a little bit about why, you know, the, why it was so important during World War II. 
But you say there's a team working there now. Who who are they? Are they a U.S. team or is this a local team trying to deal with this? So this is um this is a local team. It's uh, from the Royal Solomon Islands Police Force. Um, they are a squad of um really really well trained and very um very skilled uh, bomb disposal technicians. Uh, they do have advisors occasionally come through. They have been trained to international standards um, by various uh, nations under various kind of um, programs, um, but they do have advisors who come in and they have a permanent uh, Australian uh, explosive ordnance disposal uh, expert who kind of works with them um, on their issues. But but one of the things that they're really stymied by is just a lack of funding. And so the kind of the flow-on effect, the symptom of that is that the lion's share of, if not maybe 95% of all explosive explosives disposal uh, work has been done around the capital city and it hasn't really been done elsewhere, you know, because the, the reality is, is that the Solomon Islands is a bunch of islands. It's an archipelago. There are airports everywhere, and a lot of those airports are historical airports that were built for the World War II effort. So along with an airstrip comes the UXO reality. Um, So actually in recent years, there have been kind of smaller efforts to clear um, airstrips as they kind of get resurfaced. but of course, that it's it's only really surface level um, stuff that's being done. Is it mostly these kind of abandoned munitions, or is there stuff that was there like shelling and duds and things that just kind of didn't explode that are lingering around? Is it just mostly stuff that got left behind because it was easier and cheaper to just leave it behind? Yes, so it's a mixture of all of those, actually. You know, <laughs> um, so I was. In, in kind of doing my reporting uh, and reading all of these reports, there was one uh, assessment done in Palau which made um, an estimation that 30% of bombs dropped during World War II didn't, didn't actually explode. And if you just imagine, I'm sure that you guys know well, the enormity, the sheer poundage, tonnage of munitions dropped during during World War II across the Pacific is massive. So. Um, there's that, you know, there's there's that problem, but then there is the stockpiling as well. Um, so kind of in the wake of the war <laughs> and and as um, the US is cleaning up and, the, and Britain is kind of taking over uh, the Solomon Islands again, um, essentially it was kind of ditch and run uh, was a part of the mentality, I guess. Um, so, there, you know, there are many kind of accounts and um, even some images that I've seen that, um, show, you know, just barges off the coast just dropping tons of detritus, including UXO. Um, in fact, in Western Province, we were um, out there doing some reporting, looking at some shipwrecks. Some of the scuba sites, you know, the, the places that people go, you know, the Solomon Islands doesn't have a great tourism industry, but the tourism industry is definitely driven by scuba, mm-hmm. scuba diving. And, you know, some of these sites, you know, there's the Kashimaru, there's the Kinugawa Maru, these ships, but then also there's 
US dump site where, you know, you can go down and see a digger and a bunch of bombs and stuff like that. So, in, in fact, and there's also another one around there where there was just a military hospital and they and New Zealand just decided, okay, well, we'll take this all and just dump it in the ocean. So, yeah, it's a bit of everything, really. So if these munitions, like, they'll last 70-something years? I mean, or they'll explode after 70-something years? Should we be taking these bombs and shells and be sending them to Ukraine? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I take that back. No. <laughs> no There's an ammunition uh, shortage on the other side of the world, right? Exactly. Reuse, reuse, and cycle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, my my actual question though is like, I mean, does this mean that how dangerous are these things? Like, if you touch them, like with a pin, do they go off? Or yeah, I mean, just to give some sort of sense of like what danger a person would face how, if you're near one. How yeah, there's a lot of firsthand accounts of things that have happened to people in the reporting. Um, I think that'll kind of illustrate how fragile the earth is all around you in the Solomon islands and how dangerous it can be. Uh, I think tell us some of those stories. Yeah. So, you know, on the kind of the integrity of these kind of uh, unexploded ordnance. I mean, one story is about, I saw um, sorry, scenery. I saw Tengata, uh, a young, young boy, not even a teenager yet. Um, was out playing in the essentially in the backyard of what 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 is his home um after school one day he's with his friends and it had been raining and essentially in his backyard there's kind of like a swampy area so he also lives next to bloody ridge which is close to the airport and also a place a key battle during world war ii um, so you can imagine the ridge was mortared to hell um, and was site of a lot of, you know, sacrifice, really, on the U.S. and um, Allies' part, as well as um, a lot of death and for, for Japan. Anyway, so um, Isaiah was out playing with his friends and climbs a tree, and then he sees from the top of this tree that there's a box of bombs underneath um, or just maybe not a box, maybe just a, a little pile of bombs that are there and unbeknownst to him, the, you know, mortar shells. Um, his father had told him growing up, never touch the bombs, you know, as if it's like, don't talk to strangers or as if it's like, don't go into the woods too late or, you know, those kind of things that maybe we're told when we're younger, but yet yeah, don't touch the bombs. If you see them, tell an adult. So he's a, he's a young boy. He's a young lad. He's boisterous. He, you know, does what young lads do. He disobeys his parents. But unfortunately, um, against his friend's kind of uh, advice, he, he, he picks one up. Um, so the, this, they suspect that in this bomb, um, what had happened was it rusted, but, and the way that it, it had rusted in this kind of boggy area in the swamp, mud had kind of kept it sealed. So this is a white phosphorus mortar. So it's actually kind of, it was safe, concealed in the swamp. But what happened was when he picked it up, they suspect that 
the mud that was kind of plugging a hole that had rusted in this white phosphorus mortar essentially kind of opened up. And of course, when white phosphorus meets air, it does its job. And unfortunately for Senri, that meant that his hands and up to his elbows were covered in white phosphorus, reacting with the air and just leaving him with these horrific burns. Um, so the burns essentially fused a few of his fingers together um, and he was rushed to hospital, um, which in itself is a kind of a dangerous place. It's not like most sanitary or um, lovely place to get health care. Um, they drove him. Luckily, there was a friend that had a car that could drive them because hospital, like um, ambulances aren't really a thing in Honiara. But now this kid is, you know, years later, still living with the realities of a war that happened, you know, um, close to 80 years ago. And, um, yeah, and, and actually just, just adding on to that, when I was visiting the family at their home, I was talking to the father um, and he said, oh, yeah, there's some bombs out the back. There was a fire that ran through the back, like a wildfire that ran through the back of our place. And it kind of uncovered some bombs. Do you want to have a look? <laughs> so we went out there and there, lo and behold, two massive shells um, sitting there. So it's just kind of very normal um, for them to kind of see them around. And, yeah, so, I mean, if a wildfire tore through there again, who knows whether those bombs would go off, but it would be a massive explosion. Anyway, so, um, yeah, this young boy has kind of been scarred for life. He, he, you know, acts as though he's got a thousand mile stare. You know, he, he, he isn't fully engaged. He's not returned to school because he's embarrassed. Um, and he's just having trouble with living. Um, with this like massive scarring on his arms and on his like lower belly. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a really sad situation and one that, you know, they're trying to get help for him for, but and then other instances, of course, you know, where, sorry um, to kind of answer your question better. Um, there are other instances where people light a fire in their backyard and um, because fire is the way that they cook, they don't cook with ovens or um, some might cook on gas burners. The The majority of people cook over fire um, and kind of like a barbecue kind of thing, or maybe it's just a fire on the ground with some corrugated iron over the top cooking crabs. Um, and yeah, unbeknownst to them, underneath that fire is a bomb, a UXO, and that'll go off. So there was another family that I um, spent close to a day with um, and the the family had lost the father and one of their sons um, while cooking dinner one night because underneath was a was a bomb um, and the mother can't walk properly because her kind of legs are pocked with um, holes from shrapnel um, and the son the second eldest son has got a, just a humongous scar on his, um, just covering his sternum from where a uh, piece of shrapnel lodged pretty close to his heart. He was he was pretty lucky to survive. So, um, 
other and then there are other stories of a, a lady hoeing her garden and striking a bomb you know just so so many of these kind of stories where people are going about their everyday lives not realizing that that well not realizing or maybe realizing but just kind of going about their lives and then it's a bit of a crapshoot uh when it comes to putting down fires to cook dinner or gardening or just growing food to eat how many people die every year so the it's it's very hard to quantify but researchers kind of estimate estimate it's around 20 if not more um the the reason it's very hard to quantify is because a the solomon islands police doesn't have the capacity to kind of collect data on all of this and then secondly it's because it's a country of a thousand almost a thousand islands and how do you kind of keep track of deaths by bomb when it might be you know on a small island miles and miles away from the capital where the police are not and um that village might not have any electricity might not have any way to report it and they don't have a local hospital to go to so as one um of my contacts told me he said you know the reality is, is maybe they bundle them up and put them in a boat and try and get them somewhere, but they'll just die on the boat. So they'll just turn around and bury them there. So that that's kind of the reality. But they estimate 20 or more die every year by bomb. If people sue the United States, does the United States have any kind of responsibility on this legally or, um, you know, it- yeah, just wondering what's happened in all these years since. Big, the big issue here is that this is the reality of life in the Solomon Islands. A lot of Solomon Islanders don't have the means or the kind of voice to raise this. Um, so there, there has been kind of maybe one or two that have tried to get in contact with the U.S. Embassy, uh, which was in Papua New Guinea. Uh, The Solomon Islands only recently had its uh, embassy open up. Um, And essentially, they've just been met with radio silence. Um, There was an an agreement between the U.S. and the Solomon Islands that was drafted up a couple of decades ago, but that was never ratified by the Solomon Islands, so it can't really, really leverage its... Um, the power that would have come with that. Um, and I mean, for instance, Senri, the young boy who was hurt or, you know, devastated by white phosphorus, he's not, he's, he's actually getting help in Australia at the moment. Um, thankfully he's, he's undergoing some surgical procedures to unfuse his fingers and perhaps give him some kind of better quality of life. But that's from a rotary group. That's not from, the US, Australia, or Japan. Um, so, yeah, the, the the kind of the ways that one might get help, such as those in um, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, might get help through the um, through this uh, Leahy Fund of uh, the Congressman uh, Patrick Leahy uh, helped kind of champion this uh, to get help. Um, yeah, the Solomon Islands doesn't 
fall under that. And I don't believe that any of the Pacific nations really do either. So, yeah, it's um, they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, unfortunately. And the, um, they have been raising their voice about it, you know, while I was there. Um, I spoke one other family that I spoke to. Um, they are pretty well connected politically. Um, I think the the brother of one of the victims, sorry, the sister of one of the victims, um, is uh, married to the brother of the leader of the opposition party. Um, but even they've like been having trouble kind of getting this out there um, or getting some help because the reality is, is for the Solomon Islands, reparation is a massive part of culture. It's culture. Reparation is crucial. Um, but yeah, just, just getting the, getting the air of the right people is, seems virtually impossible. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Is there um, a toxicity issue around these weapons too in the munitions? I'm wondering beyond just the explosives and the, the physical damage, well, beyond the explosive damage from them, uh, is there anything, is there any lasting impact from the chemicals and the metals in the soil. There hasn't been any research into it to really kind of prove yes or no. Um, there has been mustard gas found stockpiled. Um, but I have been speaking to a Georgetown professor, um, a doctor of public health expert who kind of has a very strong affinity for um, the Solomon Islands, her, uh, I believe it was her uncle, uh, is currently resting in um, Iron Bottom Sound, was killed during the um, during the conflict. Um, and she believes, uh, from our conversations, that it does have an impact because, of course, it was a lot of it was dumped in the water, but it was stockpiled and dropped and, and, and buried, right? So um, she believes there is some cause for concern there but um yeah in, in terms of like fully quantifiable um evidence I, I i haven't come across any um but it is certainly a concern and perhaps one that i didn't really delve into as much um but i would have liked to in this series but something i'm trying to keep an eye on now i'm pulling up your story from january uh of this year the the state department is going to kick in a million dollars 
seems like a pretty small amount of uh, audience. You can't see this. Uh, he's been uh, pretty uh, sad faced the entire time that we've been talking. Uh, as soon as I brought this story up, he started laughing. <laughs> it is a grim laughter mind. Yes. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that million dollars is a really quite laughable amount, really. If you consider the enormity of the issue. Um, so a million dollars while perhaps uh there has been a bit of a celebration around that uh to put that into context the US has given 6.8 million since 2011 so tack on another million to that um and you've still got not much um the, the million dollars is essentially to do a survey it's to quantify the problem. So, you know, that how far that will go is um, who knows, because, you know, this the greatest picture that we have in the Solomon Islands of this UX problem, of this unexploded ordnance problem, is around Honiara, the capital, you know, the key area for all of the battles, for all of the stockpiling. But there is a whole massive country that has to be surveyed as well and the way that they survey is not necessarily that so they can call them technical surveys and non-technical surveys this million dollars is for a non-technical survey which essentially is you pass the historical records you find out where the stockpiles were the you know the main battles were and then you kind of make an assessment based on that and then the technical survey is when you've actually got your wand out and you're making the quadrants and you're going through and essentially trying to find the bombs um so that this million dollars is what while it was announced the reason that i was actually laughing was because this million dollars was put forward actually a couple of years ago for a uh non-technical survey which was not completed um the reason it wasn't completed uh the the non-government organization that was charged with doing the survey uh was essentially kicked out of the solomon islands why you might ask um not a reason for laughter but two of the um two of the people working for that ngo were killed because they had taken bombs taken uxo out of out of their work area and they were essentially tinkering with them and trying to disarm them in their own apartment um, so, of course, that kind of led the Solomon Islands to say, hey, this is like massive mission creep. What are you doing? You're only supposed to be like looking at the records and trying to figure out where our bombs are so that maybe in the future the US and Japan can kick in some money to actually deal with the problem. Um, so it was a very unceremonious exit for Norwegian People's Aid. Did and anyone else die in those explosions? No, it was just those two. Okay. Um, so there was, a, I believe, a UK national and an Australian national. Um, and it was in the middle of Honiara. Um, so that caused some, caused for some controversy, for sure. So that million dollars was already put out there for the survey. So announcing it this year as some new thing kind of, yeah, puts it, yeah, but I'm, perhaps I'm a bit of a cynic, but, you know. It seems. Well, I think you've been given good reason to be cynical, right? Perhaps. 
uh, this is a, as you said at the very beginning of this conversation, this is a developing country. This is a country that is building things all the time. Um, and it's hard to do that development and make new construction and build new buildings when every time you break the earth, there's a chance something could explode, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Now it's kind of being talked about. The, the rumors swirling when I was in the Solomon Islands for a few weeks, you know, that, oh, gosh, the government's going to make us have to do surveys every time that we put up a building. You know, I mean, well, that seems like the pragmatic thing to do. Um, it does kind of scare people because it's a massive expense on top of um, what is already a massive expense for them. Um, but it is a reality, like the government now, all, on all government projects, they um, bring on uh, surveying teams to make sure that they're clear uh, so that they can build. But then it also kind of brings up the issue of like, how deep are we looking? Because that's also an issue, you know, when a bomb's dropped from a plane and it's 200 pounds, it might go pretty deep or, you know, um, so there's all these other things and um, that need to kind of be considered. And I, um, I certainly feel for the people who are trying to just build a home and need to bring on um, these help, this help. But um, part of part of what's kind of emerging from this is that um, former EOD techs who work with the police are kind of coming in now and starting their own private companies. Um, and I think it's you know with with certain things going on at the moment in terms of development is becoming a little bit lucrative for them, but it's um, relatively you know inaccessible for uh, the everyday person. And I mean the everyday person isn't gonna even bother. Um, bother with it but um for instance there was one uh uh eod squad that i met up with that was surveying an area for the local parish just kind of like a pro bono thing um and yeah that was kind of the way that they got into it just hope hoping that goodwill of like a brother or a cousin might come through for them but yeah, so it's, it's it's definitely a big issue, um, especially around those kind of key infrastructure elements. This is also a region where uh, China is seeking to grow its influence. What are relationships between the Solomon Islands and China? Yeah, so, I mean, it was interesting. I, I kind of, in the development of the story, China was kind of just a glimmer in um, or a twinkle in the eye of the Prime Minister, I guess. Um, but as I kept working on it, those those relationships really started getting stronger. Um, the Solomon Islands does have a long history with China, um, perhaps longer than people realise. Honiara has a Chinatown. Um, you know, being, I guess it's a natural thing, being a British, having a British colonial past, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so... There, there are, you know, I talk to Solomon Islanders, they're like, oh, yeah, no, I'm like, I'm a quarter Chinese, you know, or, you know, so there, there is a natural kind of relationship there. But I guess the more contemporary relationship is a bit more fraught, right? So, of course, um, China has been kind of taking steps through the Pacific, um, strengthening relationships and giving a lot of money or lending money, sorry, um, to a lot of these places. And 
it's a real concern for a lot of people in in the Solomon Islands. If I talk to an everyday Solomon Islander, they might say, um, you know, one one might say, "Oh no, I'm really kind of scared about this. This is a bad idea. Um, we shouldn't have taken our relationship away with Taiwan. We shouldn't have aligned with China." But then in another conversation, I might be talking to someone and say, "Who say, well, where's the US been for the last?" 80 years. Sure, China came here and they're offering us help, so why not take it? So, you know, there, there are these kind of separate conversations going on there. And, um, but one underlying fear with that is does our Prime Minister know how to manage his relationship with China? Because that's a big relationship to carry. And also, there have been many, many um, concerns over recent kind of bribery. Um, there's been evidence of kind of bribery going on where Chinese money has kind of gone through and ended up in politicians' hands um, from China. And you know, the Solomon Islands isn't the cleanest country when it comes to corruption. Do we have any sense what China is looking to gain there, like building building its own airstrips, or just having a region of influence? Or is it too early to tell? I personally think it's too early to tell. Um, while I was there, there were a few stories about Chinese interest in a place called Kolombangara. So Kolombangara is an island in Western Province. There was a story that was run in Australia about um, China's interest in this island because it had the you know it had the potential to be a deep sea port. I don't know whether all of that reporting kind of stood up personally, um, if I'm completely honest. But um, you know, so that that kind of that kind of puts out the question of does it want to has some key infrastructure there. Or personally, I think at this stage, really, it's more of like a kind of a um, softer influence kind of thing at the moment. Um, but things are getting things are getting more and more interesting by the day, right? You know, just, just now, really still going on or recently finished has been uh, the US kind of visit and um, cozying up with Papua New Guinea, which is, of course, Solomon Island's neighbour. Um, so you said earlier that there are also shipwrecks. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, so actually um, it wasn't really part of, I guess, UXO Lethal Legacy, the project, like the four-parter. It was an additional piece that we did. Um, but yes, so essentially shipwrecks litter the Solomon Islands. Shipwrecks and downed planes. Um, and of course, if you look at Guadalcanal, the, um, the tract of water to the north of Guadalcanal between Guadalcanal and Malaita, which is another big province, there is a place called Iron Bottom Sound. And it is named for the ships that litter the, the, the seabed. So one of the big concerns with this is that every so often you'll hear anecdotally that, you know, there's oil slicking iron bottom sound. So what's happening over time is that these ships degrading, just like these bombs, um, 
they were holding a lot of oil and fuel. So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a large concern among um, the environmental groups around the Solomon Islands. And it's a, I mean, it's a Pacific-wide problem. Um, but yeah, in the Solomon Islands, you can really see evidence of it. In fact, um, in, I imagine uh, fishing is a main source of protein, right? Yes, yes, fishing is a yeah, fishing is a key source of protein. Um, you know, there 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 isn't like really livestock in Solomon Islands, um, and fishing is also done, funnily enough, with repurposed unexploded ordnance, uh, which is also a source of death and maiming for Solomon Islanders. But um, in fact, in November last year, there was an earthquake in the Solomon Islands, and soon after that earthquake, oil was lapping onto the shores of um, on Guadalcanal. So, so that's a, it's a it's a pretty massive issue. There are some really um, interesting kind of groups doing work around it at the moment um, in the Pacific. There's one uh, called Major Projects Foundation, which is based out of Australia, which has uh, surveyed all of the shipwrecks around the Pacific and. Um, Essentially, it's kind of prioritised the uh, shipwrecks that need to be essentially drained um, or else with climate change, with increased turbidity and um, the kind of unstable ocean environment, um, it could accelerate the chance of um, essentially oil spills happening um, after so, so many decades. Um, so that that's that was one other thing that we kind of really got into in, in the Solomon Islands and was um, just another kind of part of the legacy of World War Two and the Solomon Islands. But that's also felt in like the Federated States of Micronesia. Um, I th- believe there are shipwrecks around Papua New Guinea as well. Um, pretty much anywhere the war is, <laughs> war was is there there are shipwrecks and kind of uh, a latent risk of um, oil spills. Tom Seaton, thank you so much for coming on to Angry Planet and walking us through this. Where can people find your work? Please visit uh, visit civilbeat.org um, to find my work. Thanks for listening to another episode of Angry Planet. The show is produced with love by Matthew Galt and Jason Fields, with the assistance of Kevin Nadal. This is the place where we ask you for money. If you subscribe to us on substack.angryplanet.com, it means the world to us. The show, which we've been doing for more than seven years now, means the world to us, and we hope it means a lot to you. We're incredibly grateful to our subscribers. Please feel free to ask us questions, suggest show ideas, or just say hi. $9 a month may sound like a big ask, but it helps us to do the show on top of everything else that we do. We'd love to make Angry Planet a full-time gig and bring you a lot more content. If we get enough subscriptions, that's exactly what we'll do. But even if you don't subscribe... We're grateful that you listen. Many of you have been listening since the beginning, and seriously, that makes it worth doing the show. Thank you for listening, and look for another episode next week. Stay safe. 
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.